This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. We stream live at 10 a.m. Chicago time for 80 minutes every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and our podcast shortly after at thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell happens on Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. This Is Hell also airs abbreviated versions twice every week on the Chicago South Side's Lumpen Radio and weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow. Idaho, and thrice weekly now on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. Billionaires in Space sounds like the name of a really bad sci-fi movie, or the title to a not-very-funny skit on a late-night sketch comedy show. Unfortunately, it's our grim reality here on planet Earth with the United States taxing billionaires so little. The country can no longer afford a space program and must depend on the not-so-kindness of the ultra-rich in order to explore space and pursue otherworldly science. Did you know President Barack Obama signed into law a Senator Ted Cruz-authored piece of legislation called the U.S. Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act of 2015 that allows Americans to keep what they find in space? Yeah, me neither. But apparently Obama did, and now people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk have the legal right, at least legal in U.S. courts, to take whatever they want from space. It turns out that one small step for man is one giant leap in the power and wealth of the already powerful and wealthy. Sure, the U.S. Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act of 2015 seems to contradict the 1969 Outer Space Treaty with the Soviet Union that 111 countries are party to and another 23 have signed on to but have not completed ratification. I mean, that treaty states space should be accessible to all countries and can be freely and scientifically investigated. Space and celestial bodies are exempt from national claims of ownership. Countries are to avoid contaminating and harming space or celestial bodies. Countries exploring space are responsible and liable for any damage their activities may cause. And finally, space exploration is to be guided by principles of cooperation and mutual assistance, such as obliging uh, astronauts to provide aid to one another if needed. Now ask yourself, do you expect Bezos or Musk to pursue such lofty goals in space when they have such a horrible track record within their own earthbound workplaces here on the planet? We'll consider the frightening prospect of what rapacious billionaires will do in space in a few, and we will be speaking with Corey Pine, who wrote the Baffler magazine article, Dawn of the Space Lords, Billionaires Have Big Plans to Expand Their Dominion, which appears in the January 2022 issue. Corey was on This Is Hell back in April of 2018, it seems so long ago, to discuss his then-just-published book, Live, Work, 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 Die, A Journey into the Savage Heart of Silicon Valley. Follow Corey on Twitter at Corey Pine, that's P-E-I-N, and support Corey's writing by visiting patreon.com slash news from nowhere. That's patreon.com slash news from nowhere. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, how are you, sir? 
I'm well. Thought I wasn't going to make it in today. Yeah, you're running a little <laughs> bit late there. What's going on with traffic? Uh, it was uh, it was pretty crazy out there for a little bit, um, especially south of Irving Park. But once I got past Irving Park, where the expressway is, it was pretty normal. So, oh, you, so you take the expressway? Up here? I do not. But oh, but Pulaski, I take Pulaski up. I see. So pretty bad driving this morning. Lots of yeah. light snow on the ground yes. again. It was pretty, slushy. Yeah, pretty brutal out last night as well. There's a guy who uh, blows the snow for our entire street, our entire block. He does uh, all the sidewalks from corner to corner. So if you are that person involved in the Arthland community snow blowing process, thank you very much for doing that every year. And we never ask. This past weekend was supposed to be the weekend we banished all of the holiday decorations into the basement for another 10 months, and we kind of did. Unfortunately, we did not get motivated to actually start that grueling chore until the weekend was just about over, which means it's likely another week of staring at a half-decorated fire hazard that's nothing but a sad reminder of another holiday season that could not be appropriately celebrated due to the pandemic. Sure, we got... We got to actually, you know, visit family this year, but even that was pretty risky. And we still have not celebrated with our family of friends for a couple of years now, going on three years. But more important than wrapping up another not-so-great holiday season, Richard, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, how will you know when the pandemic is over? <laughs> and you know when I, when I will know when how, the pandemic is over? How's that? When I get a call from your mom. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I like how you're beating the preemptive your mom answer to this week's question from hell. I appreciate that, Richard. Maybe Pete won't answer this week's question that way. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, the face covering, or the face mask. The coffee mug, the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. The trucker's cap, the winter beanie. Or Tuke, if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. We uh, do not make enough profit to be a not-for-profit. We do not accept any commercial or grant money, at least as of now, and I hope we get to have that continue through your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we're announcing this week's winner, as we do most weeks following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Richard will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Corey Pine on Billionaires in Space. Again, the question from hell is, how will you know when the pandemic is over? How will you know when the pandemic is over? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Richard has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is a mixture containing water, lemon juice, ginger, and turmeric. I love saying turmeric instead of turmeric, or turmeric, just to bug people. Turmeric, it's like Wednesday. Last week... Every single tabloid rag from the <laughs> New York Post to the Sun to the Mirror to the Daily Mail ran a story about someone claiming to be a dietitian who has allegedly come up with what one of those rags called, in all capital letters, the ultimate hangover cure. 
<laughs> but being a tabloid, they followed that headline with a question mark. So we have no idea if this cure actually works. <laughs> One story states, quote, according to Monica Diagostino, who has a bachelor's degree in nutrition and a master's degree in diet, dietics, dietics, Drinking a combination of water, lemon juice, ginger, and turmeric will help you feel better after a long night of partying. Monica started with a large 24-ounce jar filled with water. She then mixed in three tablespoons of lemon juice. She also added three tablespoons of ginger paste. After that... She put in a packet of turmeric sweetener, which can which contains turmeric. Turmeric makes sense. <laughs> uh, your erythrol. 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 Stevia, leaf extract, black pepper, and monk fruit extract. According to Monica, the turmeric will help with the bloating, the lemon juice is good for your skin, and the ginger will help your stomach feel better. After mixing it all together, Monica strained the drink to remove any leftover pieces of ginger and put it over ice. In another video, Monica shared an alternative for those who couldn't get their hands on the turmeric sweetener packet. packets. Instead, she replaced it with one teaspoon of turmeric a couple of shakes. A couple of shakes of black pepper. And one to two teaspoons of agave. That makes this week's hangover cure. Water, lemon juice, ginger, and turmeric, which was posted in a video online by someone trying to become famous. <laughs> Congratulations on that, Ms. D'Agostino. I hope that your attempts at fame fail miserably. We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell in 2022. If you would like to run the board as Richard and Alex do and as Sebastian has begun doing this year, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. What better way to start your new year with a new gig running the board here on This Is Hell? It's the best thing to next to winning the lottery, and it's a lot easier. If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We're looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Wednesday and our Patreon podcast on Thursday at the same time. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work within your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio, studio for your own projects as well. So if you want to do your own podcast, you can do that too. And we actually pay our board ops a living wage. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me, chuck at thisishell.com. Of course, with this position, you need to live in the Chicago area. However, we do have other work that can be done remotely, no matter where you live in the world. So if you are interested in being a board operator or working with us remotely, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We'll get you started on your new and exciting life as part of the This Is Hell crew. In fact, we got an email at chuck at thisishell.com from someone going by the name of Bursts Oh Goodness, who writes, Hi, a friend who listens regularly to This Is Hell, just mentioned to me that y'all are hiring for remote p positions. I'm not sure what openings they are, but thought I'd throw my hat in the ring for any remote production or research-type jobs. I've attached my CV. Briefly, I've co-hosted, co-produced a weekly radical anarchist radio show and podcast for the last 12 years. Like y'all's show, it's a long-form interview show featuring videos of activists or voices of activists and authors about 
issues ranging from incarceration, including prisoner voices, ecological defense, colonization, white supremacy, homo transphobia, patriarchy, labor organizing, digital security, the arts, and current events. You can find out more and find all of our archives at the final straw radio dot noblogs.org. Having listened to some of y'all's episode, I've noted overlaps in the guests at times, which tells me that we share values in common. I'd be interested to learn more if you have any job openings and I can try to shift to, uh, to as I try to shift podcasting into a paid profession in addition to a passion. Thanks, Bursts. No, thank you, Bursts. We'll be contacting you shortly. And if you are interested in anybody who's listening, if you're interested in working here in the studio with us or remotely, do what Bursts Oh Goodness did. And that's email chuck at thisishell.com. Coming up, billionaires are taking over space. We'll also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is how will you know when the pandemic is over? How will you know when the pandemic is over? Another end of the world is possible. This is hell and who knew that the end of the world would include billionaires controlling space as well as the space between the heavens and us poor slobs left behind here who cannot afford to flee our burning planet one of them insists that this is how we will save earth from climate change by outsourcing all of our dirty practices to places like the moon and mars dirty practices that of course the billionaire will control and judging by their employment practices here on earth it's not going to be pretty the other instead sees a future that is pretty much the same, except with countless space stations orbiting the planet and under his control rather than being ruled by the other evil billionaire. Here to help us understand exactly what people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk have planned for our future in space, Corey Pine returns to This Is Hell. Corey wrote the Baffler article, Dawn of the Space Lords, Billionaires Have Big Plans to Expand Their Dominion. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Corey. Hey, Chuck, thanks. It's good to be back. You can follow Corey on Twitter at Corey Pine, that's P-E-I-N, and support Corey's writing by visiting patreon.com slash news from nowhere. You start by writing, they called it a Sputnik moment in October. The Financial Times reported that over the summer of 2021, the Chinese government tested a new missile. It was reported to have been fired from a so-called hypersonic glide vehicle that circled the planet at speeds exceeding Mach 5 before landing within 25 miles of its target. The strategic implications were overblown, but the Sputnik comparison was apt in that a rival power, a communist one no less, had outperformed the United States in space. So meanwhile, here in the U.S., it's billionaires and their uh, projects that are being launched, while Elon Musk's SpaceX was picked by NASA to build the agency's first human lunar landers since the Apollo program. Is the current space race a competition between American billionaires and national governments? And if so, what does it say to you about the U.S. that it has, to a certain extent, abdicated a national space program for a privately funded one? You know, it's interesting. Uh, no country in the world can really afford to give up on space if it wants to be a major power, uh, mostly for military reasons, but also, you know, uh, most of our communications uh, go through satellites these days. So it's it's really uh, not territory that can be abandoned. So the question is, like, what kind of space policy are you going to have? And at some point over the past uh four decades or so, the United States has decided to basically privatize and outsource its space program. Uh, 
to the point where we now got a couple of billionaires who really want to control it. And, you know, China took a different course, obviously. Um, I'm, I wouldn't, I think it's, it's way too soon to say that they are outperforming the U.S. in space in general. But uh, they are making a lot of rapid advances. And, you know, just from a, a sort of nationalistic point of view, you would you would wonder why the U.S. took this course and whether it, it's really uh, producing uh, the kind of results that uh, took the U.S. to leadership in space in, in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Do you think that private funding makes it an inevitability that China will eventually outperform the U.S. space program? Will uh, private funding undermine the ability for us to compete with China? I mean, maybe. You know, the, the, both Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, so Musk has a company called SpaceX, and Bezos has this company called Blue Origin, and they both get a lot of U.S. government contracts to do stuff in space now, and they make rockets for NASA and things like that. Uh, and both of them are pursuing a strategy of lowering the overall cost of space flight. So what does that mean in practice? It means cutting corners, really. And that affects everything, you know, from uh, the manufacturing process to how they treat labor. So, you know, in the, in the article, I talk about some of the consequences of that. And I think it's it's too soon to say uh, whether it will be a disaster. I mean, it might actually be a workable strategy to to make everything cheaper, but it is going to mean, you know, probably less safety and more accidents. Um, like my my sort of bias would be that uh, a, an organized state funded effort is eventually going to outperform a, a private sector effort. But there's a lot of other factors involved. So it's really hard to say how that will shake out. And I do think that there have been some some pretty strong negative consequences already to uh, excessive privatization in the U.S. space program. And I think, uh, you know, it's likely to get worse if we continue on this course. And go ahead. Uh, no, I was I was just going to say that we're going to well get to those uh, negative circumstances that have already happened, but but you also write that U.S. military and intelligence officials feared the test vehicle could allow China to launch an unstoppable nuclear first strike. Chinese officials claimed it was not a weapon, but a peaceful spacecraft, part of a flourishing national program that recently launched a probe to Mars, landed the first robotic spacecraft on the dark side of the moon, and commenced orbital assembly of a space station just as the funded lifetime of the U.S.-backed International Space Station nears an end. But these are the same U.S. military and intelligence officials who, in the past, you know, their history is of exaggerated military capabilities and military programs of many countries, from North Korea to Iraq to Iran to the Soviet Union. How they exaggerated the threat of Grenada, Panama, and Nicaragua. So with China's uh, space program, do we know if the feared threats are again being exaggerated? And in your opinion, how much is the U.S. space uh, exploration, you know, throughout its history been guided by exaggerated fears of other nations? I mean, I would say uh, in answer to the both of those questions, I mean, the answer is yes, it's uh, it's being exaggerated currently and has been uh, through the whole history of the space program. You know, this hypersonic uh, vehicle that China launched, as, as you mentioned, um, Russia is also kind of ahead of the U.S. in developing this technology. But it's not... Um, you know, its its primary advantage is that it's so much faster than any rockets the U.S. has or anything like that. But these these hypersonic vehicles are more maneuverable 
So it does give them uh, a, a kind of military advantage. These things are harder to shoot down. But, you know, I, the idea uh, that the U.S. And, and China or Russia or any other country would be exchanging missiles of this kind is is so horrible to contemplate anyway that you know, uh, things have to really go out of control uh, before these things are actually used. Um, it, it's, you know, we're still in the in the Cold War era of mutually assured destruction when it comes to these kind of nuclear weapons. And, and I don't think that China or Russia would launch a nuclear first strike on the U.S. It's hard to imagine circumstances where, where that would be the case. Um, and a lot of the concern is just about funding. So, you know, uh, military contractors can uh, play catch up on this this one aspect of space technology. And you also point out that in November, a space capsule made by SpaceX, the company owned by PayPal lottery winner and Tesla had Elon Musk, returned four astronauts to Earth from the International Space Station. Why do you refer to Musk as a PayPal lottery winner? Because I think a lot of the support that he is getting when it comes to his science program, uh, you know, his space program, is based on this idea that people have that he's an inventor of a whole bunch of amazing technologies like the Tesla car or whatever it comes up, whatever he's come up with. So why do you refer to him as a PayPal lottery winner? Well, that, you know, that's sort of a callback to some of the conclusions I reached in my in my book um, last time I was on talking with you about Silicon Valley and, and how fortunes are made there. Uh, you know, Musk Musk was a software guy. He was at Netscape, I believe, and then uh, struck it rich with PayPal. But when it merged with another company, I think it was called X.com, and that was Pierre Omidyar's company. I might get the, the the figures mixed up there. It could have been X was Musk's. I forget. Anyway, there was a merger. PayPal made a bunch of money. It had uh, first mover advantage in uh, you know digital payments, and you know suddenly the guy is an expert in and rockets and automobiles and everything else. I mean, I I, I think I question his. Um, you know his bona fides when it comes to all these different aspects of of science and technology, and certainly if you look at um, the amount of defects in his cars, he's had a lot of problems with with Tesla just getting auto manufacturing down. Um, and I, I you know there's also a lot of uh, you can go online and watch you know uh, blooper reels effectively of SpaceX rockets blowing up. And, you know, it's kind of an indication that there are similar issues at his rocket factories. Uh, and you don't have to speculate. You can, you can see what workers at these places say workers at SpaceX have a nickname for it. They call it slave X because the, uh, the work schedules are so extreme and that's entirely of, of Musk's, uh, own, uh, intention and design. Um, he's got a very sort of Henry Ford style management philosophy. And, um, you know, I think when it, when you're doing things like, like launching people into space, um, you know, slave driving schedules and cutting corners are not really conducive to keeping them alive. So that's, that's a cause for concern. I would think, uh, I do think he's uh, a lottery winner in the sense that, uh, you know, most of, most of what made him, uh, even after building his initial fortune with PayPal, he is now, uh, you know, in a race with Jeff Bezos to be richest man in the world. Uh, most most of his fortune is is due to Wall Street speculation, as opposed to actual sort of value that he's created with his companies. So, um, I do think he's he's the world's biggest lottery winner in a lot of ways. 
you also point out that uh, the personality cults around these billionaire space lords make the nationalistic spectacle of the Apollo program seem stodgy. What is the impact on a nation when it replaces national pride with personality cults? Because I'm no fan of either one. And to be honest, I don't know which one is more frightening. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the circumstances, right? But uh, I think whatever the consequences are, we're witnessing it now. I mean, the fact that these these billionaires are in some ways able to dictate the course of the space program through by virtue of the contracts that they hold and, and the influence that they have among politicians because of their wealth, um, you know, I think we're, we're seeing that shift now. I, I don't think nationalism or, you know, capitalist personality cults are, are something that should be embraced. But, uh, you know, at least in the uh, in the space program of yore, when it was uh, about the the national effort, there was uh, more of a collective sense to it. And now we're watching these guys, you know, uh, launch tourism businesses that won't affect most people. Um, they want their 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 pilots to be called astronauts, but that's currently a a a, pos- a title that the government gives out um, to people who go to space. And, you know, it's still the case that if you want to be an astronaut, um, you know, you can get the right kind of education and training and do it. Uh, but the workforce is at companies like SpaceX. I mean, they're very white male dominated. There's a lot of issues with sexism. I mean, there, there are consequences um, that are, you know, down to the personnel level, um, which means that a lot of people in, in this in this course that the U.S. has chosen are just not going to be able to go to space or be involved in the industry because of the people who run it. You write that you expect that if Musk ever executes his Mars mission, everyone on the trip will meet a horrifying, untimely end. Musk acknowledges this risk, saying, quote, a bunch of people probably will die. And you add, of course, he'd prefer they'd be valorized as pioneers, not remembered as sacrifices to the madness of a corner-cutting billionaire. If NASA came out and announced a new space project by saying, a bunch of people will probably die, that project would probably never see the light of day due to bad publicity and the inherent risk the government program would be taking with people's lives, no matter if they volunteered or not. What explains the lack of bad press for Musk after admitting that his space program is very likely deadly? I mean, you know, I'm glad you pulled out that quote because it is it is sort of a shocking thing for somebody uh, with people in lot whose lives are, uh, you know, in his hands to say, uh, and especially given that the government has has sort of anointed him uh, through these contracts to be part of the space program. I mean, you'd think that there would be some kind of review, <laughs> you know, after uh, he said something like that. Uh, but it's not out of character for him. Uh, I think he's cultivated that, that's down to the personality cult that you mentioned. I mean, uh, he's he's cultivated this image as as somebody who's a, a bit of a uh, oh God, I hate this word, but like a maverick, you know, uh, he, he loves to be associated with, um, uh, the Robert Downey Jr. version of Iron Man. I guess that, uh, he, he modeled that character in part on Elon Musk, uh, and Musk sort of benefits from having, uh, things like that out there in the pop culture that make him seem really cool. So for, for whatever reason he gets a pass, I mean, it comes down to his wealth ultimately, but when you're as rich as he is, um, you can you can basically buy the kind of press treatment that you would like to have. Uh, 
Uh, and, you know, I'm not saying he's bribed journalists or something like that, but he, he just has so much influence that for some reason the rules don't apply to him. And I think that that's a real cause for concern when you think about what the longer term ambitions are of these, you know, billionaire space programs. Does the public, do you think it, it, the public simply has a greater tolerance for sacrifice than the public may have had in 1986 with the Ch- Challenger disaster or in 2003 with Columbia's deadly explosion? I mean, maybe, but, you know, maybe that's, you asked what the differences are between these billionaire personality cults and, and the old nationalistic um, model of uh, the U.S. exploring space. And maybe that's another one of the differences because, you know, um, I remember, I guess my first real memory of the space program was the the Challenger disaster. And, um, you know, there was a big uh, media fuss over the fact that there were, you know, school teachers on board and, um, or at least one school teacher. And, you know, you don't hear so much about the, uh, the workers that, uh, Musk is, is firing in his rockets. Um, they're not the, 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 the focus is on him, right. As the owner, uh, and the, uh, the, the guiding capitalist of the effort, as opposed to on the, uh, the highly trained people who are actually doing the work. So, um, you know, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's definitely a byproduct of, of this effort, uh, privatization effort over the years. We are speaking with author Corey Pine, who wrote the Baffler article, Dawn of the Space Lords. Billionaires have big plans to expand their dominion. You can follow Corey on Twitter, at Corey Pine. Corey was on back in April of 2018 to discuss his then-just-published book, Live, Work, 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 Die, A Journey into the Savage Heart of Silicon Valley. You can find that interview by going to thisishell.com and searching on Corey's last name, Pine, P-E-I-N. Support Corey's writing by visiting patreon.com slash news from nowhere. Neoliberalism argues, as do libertarians, business can do everything more efficiently and effectively than the cumbersome bureaucracy of government. There's also a belief that government is starting to look more and more like a business and its prioritizing of the bottom line and a disdain for regulation. So is the private sector, are billionaires taking over space exploration? Is that anything worse than the state governing over it? Why isn't it better for U.S. citizens that somebody else, not taxpayers, is paying for the billionaires' space projects. Well, I mean, the taxpayer is still paying for these billionaire space projects. Let's, I, I, I don't know if I misunderstood you, but I do, I do want to be clear about that. It's just that the money, uh, a lot more money from NASA, is now getting funneled to their corporations to do the the manufacturing, design, operations work, and uh, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons why. The public should be pretty skeptical of that. I mean, one is that anything that, that introduces or or uh, accentuates the profit motive when you have government contracting going on. I mean, it introduces a lot of bad incentives, either to you know cut corners as we uh, touched on, uh, or to uh, essentially not meet the actual goals of the program in order to prolong the contracts. So you know, there's there's the introduction of bad incentives. Uh, there's the the consequences for you know who can go, and you know in the in the bigger picture, I think that this is a story about who actually gets to operate, control, benefit from space. 
you know, who who decides how humanity is going to interact in that realm? And do we really want it to be corporations? I mean, at the end of the day, if governments are calling the shots, I mean, governments do bad stuff. Uh, don't get me wrong. But uh, if if it's at least a a uh, measure of democracy in the government, then at least the public has some say in how things go. Uh, and that is not the case for corporations. So, you know, uh, just when it comes down to, uh, you know, what kind of society we want to have, I think it's important that, uh, you know, the public role uh, come first. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that people understood that this isn't just privately funded, that we are still funding what are their pet projects at this point. You quote Texas Senator Ted Cruz, as I was quoting him earlier, uh, telling Politico in 2018, I predict the first trillionaire will be made in space. And you add that during his tenure leading the Senate Commerce Subcommittee on Space Science and Competitiveness, Cruz authored the U.S. Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act of 2015, signed by Barack Obama, which permits Americans to keep what they find in space. Cruz also affirmed that the most critical task in space was sending humans to Mars, a goal Donald Trump endorsed and Joe Biden has not reversed. So is support for the privatization of space, is it bipartisan right now? Can we vote the people who support Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk out of or the party that supports uh, Jeff Be Bezos and Elon Musk? Can we vote them out of office or is this under bipartisan control? Well, it, it is and has been bipartisan for a long time, uh, this privatization push. And, you know, the one exception that I, I mentioned in the piece, he might not be the one exception, but uh, certainly the most vocal exception is uh, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont uh, has criticized Musk and Bezos and said maybe it's not a good idea to turn the space program over to billionaires, but he is he is really the exception that proves the rule. And, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Barack Obama signed this legislation from Ted Cruz. Uh, there is a lot of bipartisan agreement on the these sort of broad outlines of space policy. And one of the things that Democrats and Republicans agree on is that privatization in space is good. And it's been a goal of NASA's going back to the Reagan administration, if not sooner, that you know one of the goals of national space policy should be for corporations to find ways to profit in space, because there is a, a view that that is the American way, and that is how American power is, is projected in the world and beyond it. Uh, is is money <laughs> and the right of uh, corporations and and people to 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 hoard money, uh, however they see fit. So that is that is the bipartisan premise of U.S. space policy for decades, and it's brought us to this point where, you know, uh, instead of, uh, you know, things like. Uh, which um, astronaut will be first to go to Mars, uh, you know, wondering how that will go. We're all focused on which billionaire will be first to profit from Mars. And, um, you know, you wonder what has happened to the, the scientific aspects of, of space exploration. Um, it's not really a priority anymore, at least um, when billionaires are calling the shots. And that's another sort of negative consequence. At around the time that President Obama was signing that law about uh, 
you can just basically have whatever you want in space. Uh, around that time that he was signing that into law, uh, you point out that considering the uh, fanciful nature of this enterprise, it's fair to wonder whether the private sector space race is merely a very expansive hobby for nerdy oligarchs. And I just was wanted to point out that around that time, Obama was ta- making these speeches about his uh, opposition to inequality. You write, they can't be serious about space uh, colonies, can they? I'm afraid that they are, and they're not alone. Studies have shown that there are at least 500 new billionaires since the pandemic started. Inequality has gotten even worse than it was before the pandemic. The earnings of the top 1% had already nearly doubled from 7.3% in 1979 to 13.2% in 2019, again before the pandemic. So how can private investment in space contribute to growing inequality and more poverty back here on Earth? Well, uh, it's... It's really like you mentioned at the top of the show, and I, I'm glad you mentioned this, um, Jeff Bezos, we talked a lot about Elon Musk, but Jeff Bezos, and Musk wants to get to Mars and build colonies there. Uh, Bezos wants to build these these orbital uh, space stations and, and move a lot of Earth manufacturing into space, which uh, doesn't really seem practical with the kind of technology we have uh, today. Um, it's it's hard to imagine moving all the factories up into space and then moving things back and forth. Uh, but it doesn't mean that it will remain um, impractical or impossible. And one of the things I did in the piece is sort of game out what uh, it would mean for society if they actually pulled off the kind of things they're talking about, um, like moving industry into space. Now, if you think about the kind of power that Amazon has, you know, the the wealth that it gave Jeff Bezos just to have uh, a near monopoly on online commerce, uh, think about what it would mean for him and his companies if uh, – it wasn't just if you wanted something shipped to your door, you probably went to Amazon. If you wanted anything uh, manufactured – um, you would have to deal with his company uh, because it was made in space. I mean, it, it's essentially setting himself up as a middleman for every key transaction. Um, and I think, you know, once you talk about having that kind of power, you have to wonder um, if the balance really has shifted from governments to corporations. You know, I think that this, the, 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 the ambitions that they talk about in space are really a way of talking about um, how our society is transforming, how our economy is transforming, and what inequality means for like the very structural things like, um, you know, who controls uh, the means of production uh, going forward, and are we going to let them control everything? Because that is really what they're talking about. You write of the newspaper Jeff Bezos owns in November, the Washington Post, David Ignatius. He hosted an event at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., titled Our Future in Space. Jeff Bezos shared the stage with the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson, and Harvard astrophysicist Avi Loeb and other fancy folk. How much has Bezos, in your opinion, already captured not only the media, but the government in pursuit of his own private space business that is only meant to profit himself? I mean, I thought that event was really uh, telling because he was he was sort of the guest of honor. And I, and and 
you know, a bigger deal than the director of NASA or uh, the director of national intelligence. Um, I think that when it comes to setting the vision, um, the billionaires are doing it. You know, who who else who else is out there that you can uh, name who is articulating uh, a, a vision for uh, what the U.S. or any country should do in space? I mean, it's really it's really down to these guys, um, and the politicians do just sort of parrot their priorities. Uh, so, I mean, I think that that battle has already been lost in a sense. Um, and one of the things that I was trying to do with this article is, is, you know, change the terms of the debate a bit. I, you know, there's if you listen to scientists, there's a lot who are concerned that uh, the idea of colonizing Mars, for example, uh, means giving up on learning about Mars and whether there was life there, uh, really understanding the history of the planet before we, you know, start mining it for resources or terraforming it to make it more habitable for humans. Um, that, that really is, is that a decision that, um, we should just let people make a few people make because, uh, they see profit in it for themselves. Um, it seems to me that it's almost, almost criminal to talk about, uh, engaging in that kind of colonial enterprise, uh, and all the environmental destruction that it would entail, um, given what we know, uh, has happened as a consequence of that kind of behavior on earth in human history. Uh, it, it, it seems like replicating some of the biggest mistakes of the past into the future. Yeah, it almost seems like a denial of every uh, huge mistake we've made, climate change, colonialism, whatever it is. We're just repeating the exact same mistakes, but we're doing it in space as if that makes it any better. You write of the our future in space gathering. The discussion provided a window into establishment thinking. Bezos wowed the crowd with descriptions of the bounty awaiting future generations born on his space stations known as O'Neill cylinders. These colonies will not be like the International Space Station, he said. They'll have rivers and forests and wildlife. And you add that Amazon Prime will be built in, he added, with hypersonic delivery. That got a laugh, but considering his place in the space program today, such pronouncements are tantamount to national policy. So this reminded me of the then head of GM, who was nominated by President Eisenhower to be his Secretary of Defense, Charles Irwin Wilson, who was still head of GM when he was nominated. As the Detroit Free Press reported back in 2013, Wilson's nomination sparked a controversy during the confirmation hearings before the Senate Armed Services Committee. When asked if he could make a decision as Secretary of Defense, that would be Adverse to the interests of General Motors, Wilson answered yes, but he added that he could not conceive of a, such a situation, quote, because for years I thought what was good for our country was good for General Motors and vice versa. That statement was frequently misquoted as what's good for GM is good for the country. Although Wilson uh, tried for years to correct that misquote, he was reported at the time of his retirement in 1957 to have accept the popular impression that what's good for General Motors is good for the country. So... Are we nearing, if not already, at the point where government leadership believes that what's good for Amazon or Tesla is good for the country and vice versa? Is their wealth, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos's wealth, suddenly good for the United States? Uh, I, when it comes to policy, I mean, 
everything seems to line up to answer that question affirmatively. I mean, I I don't see um, much skepticism uh, in either major party, uh, at least among the people who are in positions of the most power, uh, for the idea that you know wealth accumulation by billionaires is something uh, with negative consequences or something that uh, is bad for America. Certainly. Um, when it comes to the sort of crude measures of the economy, uh, GDP and whatnot, um, you know, having hordes of of private wealth uh, isn't something that affects that negatively. So, you know, from their understand, from policymakers' understanding of how the economy works or should work, I mean, yeah, I think that they do have that view uh, that what's good for Jeff Bezos is good for America. And if they felt otherwise, I, I don't think they would entrust so much. Uh, power uh, to these companies. I mean, Bezos is uh, he's he's the closest thing we've got uh, to like a old timey robber baron, right? I mean, he he controls uh, newspaper in the nation's capital. Uh, one of the the main sort of drivers of the conversation in the country. Uh, he controls the uh, a lot of the internet backbone for major uh, websites or uh, small websites too. Uh, you know, Amazon uh, is is moving into physical retail now that it's it's crushed uh, a lot of bricks and mortar stores through online shopping. and and you know, uh, when it comes to to uh, space, uh, he wants to set up a position where um, you have no choice but to deal with him. And you know, uh, if if the, if the government is going to say that that's good, then it starts to get to a point where you wonder, like, what's the point of the government? Like, is Amazon is Amazon the government? Is Jeff Bezos just the government? Certainly, if you live on an O'Neill cylinder, uh, and this is a concept that that Bezos got from uh, a Princeton professor named Gerard O'Neill, and it's it sort of uh, his idea for these space colonies really uh, stuck with Bezos for most of his life. Uh, if you think about what it would mean to live on one of these things, I mean, your your oxygen and food, <laughs> uh, your entire means of life support would be uh, contingent on his approval. Uh, you, you literally would become a, uh, a, a sort of uh, feudal subject of a sort um, to this man. And, you know, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me personally, even if there's, even if there's forests and deer and stuff that they, uh, managed to import onto these colonies. Uh, it, it sounds like, uh, a kind of prison in space where you are, uh, completely at the whim of, uh, this corporation, whether you are technically employed by it or you're paying it as a, as some kind of, uh, passenger. Um, like what has happened to the idea of, of democracy, you know, and the idea that people should have some say in how that they are, are governed, uh, if you've got a corporation that controls all the life support. I mean, it seems to me that if, if, if policymakers were really interested in, uh, you know, democracy and, and propelling that forward into the future and ensuring that it survives, uh, in an, an era of, you know, amazing technology that takes us, uh, you know, beyond Earth, that there would be rules being put into place like now in order to uh, prevent 
uh, company from holding that much power. But, you know, as you point out, Elon Musk says that when he has his colony on Mars, it's going to be a direct democracy. You write, uh, Musk audaciously says existing laws won't apply in his Martian sandbox. The terms of service for SpaceX's Starlink, for instance, specify that the parties recognize Mars as a free planet and that no Earth-based government has authority or sovereignty over Martian activities. Accordingly, disputes will be settled through self-governing principles established in good faith at the time of Martian settlement. And you add, Musk says he favors direct democracy on Mars. So in a direct democracy, couldn't Musk simply be voted out of power or does being essentially a company town or planet in this case mean your power can't be challenged even if you state that there is direct democracy? Yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty obviously a sham of of democracy that he's talking about. I mean, uh, if if anybody really thinks that he would set up a direct democracy that it will would allow uh, people uh, who worked for him and who uh, were his customers in order to get to one of his Mars colonies to to vote him uh, out of his shares, <laughs> you know, his controlling interest, then uh, you know, uh, good luck to you, I say, because uh, I just don't believe that that would be the case. Um, the uh, the idea that. Also, uh, the passage you quoted, the idea that you could have a company terms of service uh, that you would sign up to that would say uh, earth laws or existing laws don't apply. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm pretty sure that's not how the law works. Uh, you can't, for instance, sign yourself into a uh, a, a contract that violates um you know the the constitutional prohibition on slavery. So you can't uh, you can't exactly sign away uh, you know the entire uh, criminal code on Earth uh, or in the U.S. Uh, just because you you signed up for uh, some Musk uh, website. I mean it's it's really it shows you the kind of arrogance um, that is uh, at the at the root of this enterprise and. You know, um, I the fact that we already mentioned the fact that he said he expects people to die in this effort. And, you know, if if anybody really thinks that it's a good idea uh, to just trust him, um, you know, I have to I have to just hope for the best for them, because it's not a, it's not a trip that I would sign up for. Personally. And you pointed out earlier that this is still being funded by the public. So are Musk's and Bezos's programs more a reflection of individual success or a kind of state-planned economic model that is partly funded by billionaires? Because one sounds like a libertarian's fantasy come true, and the other sounds like the success being caused by Soviet-style central planning. Well, you know, I think they're they're really only interested in government as a as a um, a signer of blank checks for their projects. So when it comes to planning, I mean, they want to be doing it. Um, if you could, if you could, if that doesn't answer your question, then maybe you could restate it a little bit because, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure I understood exactly what you were getting at. I just, I just don't understand how, you know, if they, it's constantly being shown or talked about as if Jeff Bezos and uh, Elon Musk are geniuses who did this all mm. individually. Yet here it is being actually funded in a major part by the U.S. government, which would make me think that this isn't a libertarian fantasy come true. It's more the success of a kind of Soviet-style central, pla central economic planning system. 
Well, it's definitely some kind of hybrid that the U.S. has got because, you know, the technically the goals and, you know, the budgets and all of the, the, the program objectives happen uh, at a government level. Uh, but, you know, there is good reason to question the influence that these billionaires uh, have over uh, the way those goals are set. And certainly, you know, uh, when you talk about the idea of of central planning, I mean, that is why I, I, I contrasted it with uh, the Chinese approach and all of the, the recent um, uh, successes they've had, because uh, that is more indisputably a, a, a centrally planned model, although there is a lot of uh, private involvement in the Chinese space program, too. But it's not um, it's not it, it doesn't play out in quite the same way as the US. I mean, to an extent, I can I think you could say that in the US the uh, there is a kind of central planning, but it's it's directed at empowering these corporations. So you know, I, whether that whether that counts as, as real central planning or not, um, I, I would have to say no <laughs> because uh, it, it does, uh, it does have this sort of uh, objective that becomes primary to sort of enrich these corporations. Um, and I'm not sure that if you were planning things outside of the profit motive that that, that would be uh, corrupting the process in the same way. So it's a bit of a hybrid. It, to, like, I, the idea that there's some libertarian ideal of space exploration, I just don't think is realistic. I mean, I think that about a lot of liber libertarian arguments. Uh, but Every uh, every private enterprise that has tried to use only private funding um, to do ambitious stuff in space has pretty much been a bust. I mean, you really need the government's involvement, not just because they have authority over uh, launches and things like that, but just for the, the kind of resources involved. I mean, private investors don't like to take the kind of risks that are involved um, to get to space and, and much less try to make money there. Um, there was an asteroid mining effort uh, that was mostly privately funded uh, that I talk about, and that, that went bust uh, a few years ago after some wealthy tech-type people invested in it, and uh, it got sold off to a, a blockchain company. So, <laughs> you know, there is, there is an element of private funding that has a high tolerance for risk, um, but not enough of it to take over space. I mean, for that, you need government. And that's kind of, that's why I think it's concerning that, uh, you know, the billionaires are, are able to set policy at the level that they are. And it, the people who are investing in their space programs, I, I can't really figure out why they're investing in it. As you point out, some of the daunting engineering challenges Bezos and Musk face are described in a two-year study NASA commissioned in 2017 from the Institute for Defense analyses. NASA's roadmap calls for the construction of a station called Gateway in lunar orbit beginning in 2024. It will serve as a staging ground for manned missions to Mars. But it's all a bit theoretical. The Gateway requires technologies that, quote, have not been previously demonstrated at the scale required. The same caveat goes for the tech needed to fly to Mars. The previous human health risks remain poorly understood. Very few people have spent more than a month in space. The IDA projects NASA's Mars mission to take 1,100 days round trip, and that's without touching down in contrast to 
uh, Musk's claim that NASA isn't confident about being able to land Margo, or cargo on Mars uh, because of the thin atmosphere. The dangers multiply the more times people spend in the vacuum, uh, locked inside of a can with finite provisions and oxygen. A task so mundane as doing the laundry produces lingering airborne pr- particles. Foods with a year-plus shelf life may prove insufficiently nutritious as scientists could starve. Then there's cosmic radiation. So I can't help myself from wondering, Corey, if this is all a scam for Musk and Bezos to bilk NASA in some sort of fraud by hucksters selling snake oil to the public and a more than willing government. Even if Musk nor Bezos can actually get done what they say they can get done in space, can they still benefit in any way, even if they fail? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the that's the issue. I mean, they're really I you know, my my bias is always to think that something is a scam or a joke, <laughs> you know, and as it was with this, uh, you know, billionaires and space stuff until I looked at it more closely. I mean, I think that it's a problem even if they fail because uh, the government is sold on their objectives. You know, this idea of going to Mars, as I wrote, you know, the technology isn't here, but there is a, a national security imperative uh, to make those kind of uh, ambitious targets. So, you know, one of the the more subtle arguments I I try to make in the piece is that the process of trying to do these things, you know, which is, you know, definitely going to happen whether it works or not, is happening in such a way that the corporations are enriched and empowered whether or not they produce results, you know, because Expanding uh, the U.S. presence in space is a government priority, so it's going to happen, you know, whoever does it, and the decision has been made that these guys should do it. It's going to it's going to enrich them and enhance their influence over policy, uh, and enhance their monopolies on Earth, pretty much whether or not they can actually pull it off. And, you know, when when it comes to whether it can be pulled off, I mean. I am not a scientist, <laughs> you know, I don't know for sure one way or the other. I, there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical, uh, but I, I think it would be a big mistake to just write it off as a scam and say it's not going to happen and, you know, who cares because uh, the work is, is being done, the money is being shoveled to these companies, uh, they are uh, setting policy in a lot of key ways that will have consequences for people. And, you know, if they never deliver and the work and and it, it, it turns out that, you know, uh, millions of people don't wind up living in, uh, feudal societies in space or on Mars that belong entirely to these corporations. I mean, that would be positive, I guess, but a lot of negative things could still happen just because they're in charge of, uh, this aspect of policy. So, you know, I, I hope that answers your question. Um, I, I don't, uh, I don't have a, a crystal ball, so I can't say whether they'll actually pull these things off. But you know, lots of technological breakthroughs, lots of things that seemed impossible um, just in the past hundred years or so have come to pass. So I would not count out, um, you know, the people developing space technologies even if they have to work for these corner-cutting corporations, uh, because a lot of them are very clever and dedicated and uh, brilliant and, and 
they will find a way to achieve their goals even under difficult circumstances or less than ideal circumstances. So, you know, I think uh, whether or not they can pull it off, we should have this conversation about what, you know, what space policy should look like, who should be in charge of it, you know, how do we ensure that it's democratic, how do we ensure that, you know, uh, science remains a priority, and how do we get back to the idea of international cooperation, you know, which is something that John F. Kennedy talked about uh, when he was announcing the Apollo program. And, you know, it seems like uh, hard to imagine in the kind of world that we live in now. But I would like, you know, to reintroduce <laughs> some of those old concepts because uh, it, it's really the only way that humanity can get involved in space in a way that that doesn't either, uh, you know, evolve into some kind of corporate dystopia or some kind of military, you know, catastrophe. Uh, so that's that's what I advocate for. One last question for you, Corey. We have been speaking with Corey Pine, who wrote the Baffler magazine article, Dawn of the Space Lords. Billionaires have big plans to expand their dominion, which appears in the January 2022 issue. Corey was on the show back in April of 2018 to discuss his then-just-published book, Live, Work, 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 Die, A Journey into the Savage Heart of Silicon Valley, and an exceptional title for a book. You can follow Corey on Twitter at Corey Pine, P-E-I-N, and you can support Corey's writing by visiting patreon.com slash news from nowhere one last question for you Corey. and as we do with all of our guests our final question is the question from hell the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response when it comes to what we were discussing right at the beginning of our conversation the possible militarization of space by china the u.s has an actual space force and on friday space.com ran a story with the headline atlas 5 rocket launches two surveillance satellites for u.s Space Force. So, and when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, this, what the United States is offering to corporations in space, that would seem like it violates the Outer Space Treaty, which says things like space and celestial bodies are exempt from national claims of ownership. Countries are to avoid contaminating and harming space of celestial bodies. Space should be accessible to all countries and can be freely and scientifically investigated. All those things, Musk and uh, uh, Bezos would seem to be violating all those aspects of that treaty. So to what degree do you think uh, that uh, how much are uh, Bezos and Musk and their space projects threats to the safety and security, not only of the heavens, but even life here on Earth? Well, you know, this, when it comes to the military side, I mean, that's one area where the government is still, as far as I know, calling the shots. However, you know, as I point out in the piece, uh, Musk was once asked about his plans to terraform Mars, you know, to change the climate there. And he said that the fastest way to do it would be to uh, drop nuclear bombs over the poles on Mars to to melt the ice. And, uh, you know, people were a little bit horrified by that, but not for the reason that um, it really implies. I mean, if you think about it, how would he get nuclear weapons and who would give them to him? You know, so uh, it's a long way of answering your question. But I think that if we get to the point where Elon Musk has nukes at his command, then we will definitely know that there's been some kind of fundamental shift in power. <laughs> uh, so it, to the extent that they want to have that kind of power, they are a threat. When it comes to, uh, you know, 
what weapons are getting put in space, um, you know, that's still, as far as I know, uh, the government's decision. But and, just for now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the other thing is that, uh, you know, what we've seen with the pandemic and the vaccine, international cooperation is the top priority of the United States or most of the Western world right now. So I don't have a lot of great faith in this becoming an internationally cooperative project in the near future, unfortunately. Corey, it's great to have you back on the show, and I really appreciate it. Again, you got to check out our interview that we did with Corey back in April of 2018 on his book, Live, Work, 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 Die. And you can follow Corey on Twitter at Corey Pine. Thank you so much for being back on our show, Corey. Well, thanks again for having me, and it was a blast. All right, take care. Okay, bye. You are listening to Corey's and God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is hell. I'm serious. Prove me wrong. Send me an email at chuck at thisishell.com and prove to me that this is not Corey's or God's favorite radio show. If what you just heard from Corey Pine on billionaires taking over space with bipartisan support that was in some way enlightening or frightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or just made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Next, uh, uh, on this week's and this last week's Patreon podcast, it was This Week in Hell, our increasingly regular review of what I learned during that week's hell, which may not be what you learned during that week's episodes of This is Hell. It all started with a conversation on the increasingly violent nature of the militia movement in the United States, which has moved on from a misreading of the Constitution to justify their beliefs, possibly realizing that a set of founding documents that institutionalizes racism as shaky ground for the justification of anything remotely de democratic, militia members have now moved on to a new set of unsubstantiated conspiracy theories to legitimize their understanding of the world. As that movement started and remains very popular where much of my family lives, Michigan, it was a disturbing way to start last week. We then moved on to how anything and everything can become gentrified, including what you would think cannot be, including psychedelics, things like psilocybin mushrooms, which in some states are now on a similar trajectory of legalization as recreational marijuana is. After frightening discussions on increasingly violent militias and commercializing the healing power of psychedelics, we went to Kazakhstan in an attempt to better understand the early January protests that were poorly covered in the West with its media obsessed with fears of a Russian invasion. And we also decided to find out what the hell we were talking about 20 years ago, and we found a 2002 conversation with the corporate crime reporter himself, Russell McIver, who is on back in January of 2002, to tell us how the Enron and Arthur Anderson scandals went all the way up to the Securities and Exchange Commission, reflecting an institutional kind of corruption and cronyism that would make the leaders of Kazakhstan blush. But you can only hear my week in hell last week and a 20-year-old talk on U.S. corruption by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. When you do become a subscriber, you also get a secret code word that gives all Patreon patrons $5 off each piece of This Is Hell merchandise, which you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. Richard, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's... <clears throat> excuse me. <laughs> this week's... <laughs> Question from Hill is, how will you know when the pandemic is over? How will you know when the pandemic is over? 
Chris L. answers, when the $18,000 worth of toilet paper I bought <laughs> when it started finally runs out. <laughs> I think it's appreciating in value, depreciating. It's like crypto. It's all over the place. Fabio answers, when the anti-vax crowd starts a third party. <laughs> That'll be awesome. How will you know when the pandemic is over? Eve answers, when we all finally catch the Omega variant. Oh, yikes. It's only about 23 variants away from now. Yes. Greg answers when Fauci and Gates sing a duet of There's Got to Be a Morning After. Oof. Uh, let's hope that never happens. You know when that well, you know when that's from, right? Yes, Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Andrea answers when the ladies of La Jolla Beach, La Jolla Beach parade in their upcycled surgical masks bikinis. Jeez. <laughs> Yikes. And that's all we have for today. Again, the question from hell is, how will you know when the pandemic is over? How will you know when the pandemic is over? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want that is currently available at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Richard, I'm going to give you the, let's see, how about the second segment Very good. in Rotten History. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. On January 25th, 1979, 43 years ago, Tuesday, at a Ford Motor Company casting plant in Flat Rock, Michigan, outside Detroit, 25-year-old worker named Robert Williams was one of a three-man team operating a 50-foot-tall industrial robot that pulled large engine parts out of a storage rack. And when a 50-foot-tall industrial robot tasked with pulling things appears in rotten history, things do not bode well. A problem arose when the robot was not pulling the parts out at the right speed and seemed to be giving false readings of the number of parts remaining on the rack. It's as if the robot suddenly had a mind of its own. Williams was asked to climb up into the rack's third level to pull one of the parts out by hand, which sounds like a really, really bad idea. Unfortunately for Williams, the robot was still operating, and as the, somebody, you'd think somebody would have turned it off. And as the machine reached into the rack with one of its heavy mechanical arms, it slammed into Williams, hitting him in the back of the head and crushing him to death. Half an hour went by before any of Williams' co-workers noticed, as he was clearly a very popular co-worker. He was missing, and they didn't even notice that he was missing, and they found his body inside the parts rack. Williams had become the first person in history known to have been killed by a robot. Sure, known to have. But as we all know, robots are notorious about covering up their crimes. Williams' family, family was later awarded $15 million by a jury that found the robot's manufacturer, Lighten Industries, guilty of failing to provide adequate safety systems. Lighton was also a U.S. military contractor. It would be absorbed by Northrop Grumman in 2001. Skynet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Meanwhile, the robot now serves in an elite team of Marine commandos and has attained the rank of captain. Hold on, I want to ask. He, there was a three-man team. Right. 
And he wasn't discovered for half an hour? Half an hour. I'm telling you, the most unpopular worker in the place. Hey, did you notice that Williams is missing? (sighs) Yeah, who really cares? That guy's a loser. That's why we sent him into the robot to get that piece out of the wreck. Hey, did you turn off the robot? Hell no. Williams is going in. Who cares? That's the first... uh the first order of working on equipment is to make sure you turn it off. <laughs> Especially robot equipment. Uh, isn't it an Isaac Asimov rule of robot law, too, that you turn them off? Uh, all right, you got some more out in history? January 28th, 1922. 100 years ago this Friday, more than a 1,000 people were gathered inside the opulent Knickerbocker Theater in Washington, D.C. to see a new silent comedy film. The patrons, including many prominent business and society folks, had made it to the Knickerbocker in spite of a one of the most, in spite of one of the most massive winter blizzards in U.S. history, which had paralyzed the city. You know what? Also, just think about this for a second. Yes. This was in the waning days of the 1917 pandemic, and people were literally dying to be entertained outside of their homes that didn't have radios, TVs, or smartphones. So it kind of makes sense that people would go out in a blizzard and go see some entertainment. Inside the theater, the second screening of the evening had just begun when a burst of laughter from the audience in response to an on-screen gag was quickly followed by a loud crackling noises coming from the ceiling. Only a, a few quick-witted members of the audience had the presence of mind to dive underneath their seats before the flat roof of the Knickerbocker Theater split down the center and caved in from the pressure of many tons of wet snow. Yikes. The collapse brought down two balconies and rained a deluge of bricks, concrete, wood, steel, and snow upon the audience below. 98 people were killed with another 133 injured. An inquiry would later find, among other things, that the steel beams supporting the roof had been set only two inches into the walls rather than the eight inches specified by the architect. And always do what the architect tells you to do. Even so, the architect developed a serious drinking problem (laughs) and later committed suicide, as did the theater's owner. Wow. Meanwhile, the Knickerbocker was, was repaired and was... And with a rebuilt interior, renamed the Ambassador Theater, it would be used for decades later for concerts by such acts as Canned Heat, John Lee Hooker, and Jimi Hendrix, before being demolished in 1969 to make way for a new bank. And did any of you expect a Canned Heat reference in a Rotten History segment about snow causing a roof to collapse? Wow, they really brought down the house that day, didn't they? Thank you very much for that horrible, horrible, horrible joke, and I want to apologize. That's Rotten History, and this is Hal Richard, who is our next guest on this week's This Is Hal. Yes, sad news. We have a cancellation for Tuesday. No, we do now, finally. Yes, so that has been confirmed. We have not made... Another. Uh, we haven't confirmed our guest yet. We haven't confirmed a new guest. We were Tuesday. supposed to have Johan Hari returning to the show. He's got a new book out called Stolen Focus Why You Can't Pay Attention. And just this morning, we found out that he had to be out in an earlier time at the very last minute. And so we're going to try to reschedule Johan for an upcoming interview slot. What about on Wednesday's, yes, Wednesday's show? We have Wednesday, we have Ashwin on his article. To save the rainforest, provide health care, education, and services to those who protect them for the trouble. 
And a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. That's, I know it uh, wasn't there in the notes, but that's Ashwin Ravakumar, uh, who has joined us during the This Is Hell office hours at times when we had those. Uh, we haven't had any since February of 2020, so we're almost up on two years of not having our regular drink and think. And I really want to get back to having that. And hopefully if the surge is over for Omicron and we don't have the unfortunate Omega variant coming in the near future. Uh, maybe we'll be able to get back to having This Is Hell Office Hours again. Our weekly drink and think. That's uh, not really a meet and greet. Thanks to our guest today, Corey Pine, who wrote the Baffler article, Dawn of the Space Lords. Billionaires have big plans to expand their dominion, which appears in the January 2022 issue. You can follow Corey on Twitter at Corey Pine. That's P-E-I-N. Thanks to Richard Norwood for running the board today. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. This week's Hangover Cure is a mixture containing water, lemon juice, ginger, and Turmeric. I love saying that additional R. Turmeric. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell... And to support the show, visit thisishell.com.